Welcome to the Middle East Law and Governance podcast. Middle East Law and Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. And this is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today we are lucky to be joined by Jose Ciro Martinez. Jose received his PhD in politics from King's College, Cambridge in 2018, and has since held a position as a research fellow at Trinity College. His research focuses on the politics of food, contention, and state formation in the Middle East. Jose, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's a pleasure to have you with us. I've been fascinated by your work on bakeries and bread politics in Jordan and, and in the region more broadly. Um, and maybe actually you could start by, you know, telling us how you ended up with this, you know, very interesting focus on food politics in the region and, and on bakeries in particular. So it started a bit fortuitously. I guess it's a bit of a personal anecdote, but I went to Syria the year after my undergraduate uh, studies ended with the idea of doing some intensive Arabic. And like most um, foreigners of the time, I rented an apartment in the old city, or not an apartment, I guess a room in a shared house in the old city. And it was one of these sort of beautiful classic uh, Damascene uh, homes with uh, three floors. And uh, the second and the third floor were occupied by sort of the family, the host family. And then the bottom floors were sort of a, a rotating cast of three different uh, foreigners. Uh, either NGOs or people studying Arabic. And so I went, and I guess, you know, I was I was 22 or 23 at the time, and the goal was sort of constant immersion in language. And so I was, you know, trying to hang out, I guess, rather constantly. And it ends up happening that the owner or the father of the household made man'ushe, mana'ish, which is, uh, as some of the listeners might know, is sort of this classic uh, Middle, East, Middle Eastern flatbread, which you see in most of the Levant, and on top of which you put sort of different flavorings. People call it Middle Eastern pizza. I don't think it's quite that. If you want to get, we can get into the nerdy discussion about dough. But <laughs> So I was walking by one day and uh, sort of uh, there were three younger brothers and they were all going to the Manusha maker. It was uh, late summertime, so I, everyone was off of school. And I asked them, well, where they're going? And they said, well, we're going to help our dad with work. And I said, well, can I come? And they looked at me sort of perplexed and said, well, yeah, sure. I mean, why not? And it became, uh, it became a way just to sort of talk and practice my Arabic in a far less sort of uh, formal zone than the university or in a tutorial with a, with a professor. And so I went and uh, it started, that's how it started. Uh, Syria, as some, as some might know, has uh, it calls subsidized bread, which literally means bread of the state. And so I guess here were the beginnings of this idea that it, bread and bakeries and food might be of of interest. Great. And so from that origin in Syria, we get to the interesting article on bakeries in Jordan uh, that you published in Melg, uh, which is entitled Site of Resistance or Apparatus of Acquiescence, Tactics at the Bakery. Uh, and this piece, uh, which is currently open access on Melg's website, um, speaks to a number of complex literatures. Uh, and I wonder if maybe before we jump into the, the main ideas of the paper, you could provide sort of a quick overview of the spatial and resistance literatures uh, in which the article is sort of primarily situated. So there are two um, sort of big literatures that I'm trying to address in the article. The first one has to do with uh, space, and it comes out of this tradition that starts with uh, the French sociologist Henri Lefebvre, who has been taken up by a lot of sort of geographers. And the question, the central question the literature sort of is wrestling with is how do uh, citizens 
and uh, residents of cities navigate space? What are the ways they try to reappropriate it? How do they go about making use of it? And uh, Lefebvre, as a, as a sort of classic uh, French Marxist, is very much invested in thinking about the right to the city and how those in situations of marginalization can combat, uh, rethink, and try to counter what he calls abstract space, which is the sort of spatial prism through which uh, bureaucrats and policymakers tend to see space, right? They see it through the prism of statistics, they see it through the prism of planning. And so Lefebvre is invested in thinking about how people operate in everyday life, given those uh, strictures. And the resistance literature is a bit more straightforward, right? But there's a the sort of classic question that especially the anthropologists of the Middle East have been asking themselves is, how can we identify something as resistance? Do we not make errors in romanticizing resistance? Because, you know, we are often... We often have lots of solidarity with our informants, the people we go to study with and learn from. And one of the findings in sort of the mid nineties, or one of the big arguments was that we are, we, we're seeing anything and everything through the prism of resistance. And I find Salah Mahmoud's work, especially influential in this regard. And so after spending some time at the bakery, I started to think through these sort of literatures and ponder what is it that I'm seeing? Are these easily categorized actions of resistance? How are people using the bakery? as a space to counter or to live differently than the ways that uh, policymakers want to organize their lives. And so these are the sort of the two big hubs that organize the article and sort of the questions that I'm thinking through in it with the reader. Um, and so you conducted 12 months of participant observation in bakeries across Oman and were able to closely observe the sort of complex relationships um, between bakery owners, workers, consumers, uh, and government employees. And you note in the article that this helped to, to challenge some of the simple classifications and binaries that you saw in the literature, uh, particularly, as you were just mentioning, uh, in relation to resistance. What are some of the, the key findings that emerged from your direct observations? So there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of binaries that very quickly became untangled at the bakery. And in terms of things that emerged just um, from the sort of the method of uh, fieldwork, was take, for example, the sort of classic state society boundary, right? So bakers are, they own private bakeries that dispense a public or a welfare good, right? Which is subsidized bread. And so you read most um, contemporary political science articles and there's usually some sort of rigid distinction uh, between the state and society. And so who is the baker? Is he a member of the state? Is he a member of society? Is he somewhere in the middle? And so these were the types of, uh, of relationships and the types of uh, people, right, and the types of uh, daily routines and actions that made me rethink or want to rethink the sort of binaries that I encountered. Specifically in terms of the question you asked, well, it made me completely rethink how I thought of resistance, right? So I went, and most of the people I guess I was, um, I was around during my first few stays in Jordan were, you know, usually somewhat critical of the political system in some way, shape, or form, right. be it of the parliament, be it of elections. I mean, there was usually some uh, node of critique in their ways of discussing politics. And so I went ready to see bakers and bakery owners to be um, maybe not quite radical, uh, uh, radical Marxists or, or, or <laughs> communists, but I was expecting resistance. I was expecting denunciations. I was expecting. And what I realized is that I went in with a certain prism, expecting certain things 
And the more I asked, the more I realized that that's not what people were telling me. And so rather than ascribe to them intentions, I thought, well, let me have them speak and let me have them say what they have to say. And so what the article tries to do is to think with these uh, bakery owners and with the people who inhabit the neighborhoods that they serve to try to think about, well, if you're telling me explicitly that what you're doing is very much not resistance and it's about making life livable, it's about survival, it's about taking care of my neighbors, it's about making sure everyone has enough to eat, then I'm not going to call it resistance anymore, right? Because mm -hmm. you're telling me that it's not that. And so one of the big things I took away was that it is all too easy to ascribe uh, resistance, right? And it is much harder to think about, well, what is agency in the middle of resistance or acquiescence, hence the title of the article. Most of the actions that I was seeing were somewhere in the middle, right? People would denounce the ministry or denounce the bureaucrat at the same time as they praised the king or at the same time as they praised certain parts of the, of the political system. Sometimes they just didn't care and wanted to do enough to make sure their business survived or the people they cared for survived. And so the article tries to capture that in ways that escape sort of this easy recurrence, right, to, oh, this is, these are hegemonic acts or counter-hegemonic acts. I think those categories don't quite capture the richness of what I was seeing. And so I thought it was better to turn to other concepts. No, that's really interesting. I, I, I mean, these sort of mm, practices at the bakery that sort of disrupt but do not fully challenge the political order. I mean, to me, that sort of reflects um, sort of broader contentious politics in Jordan, um, you know, where you see actors that are resisting the system, but for example, they're following carefully and well-established red lines and sort of accepted repertoires of contention. Do you see that as similar or does that sort of go against exactly what you're trying to resist? No, I see it, I see it as quite similar. And I see it as something we all face in all sorts of different um, contexts and places. But I absolutely think um, what the sort of social movement theorists call repertoires of contention, the way people go about exhibiting their dissent or their dislike for certain policies or their anger often uh, molds itself to con to uh, to certain scripts that have been set out beforehand and those uh, scripts are not necessarily handed down by those in power in a sort of one way right. conversation right there's a product of of learning a product of past episodes of contention there's a product of uh, mm -hmm. all sorts of things that Asif Bayat, for example, gets into, right? These uh, encroachments of the ordinary, the way people activate networks in moments of uh, despair or in moments of anger and dissent. And so I think uh, you're absolutely right. I guess I would argue, and what I wanted to illuminate through the bakery were different sites in which these things were happening, right? Because I do think that the political, the sort of oppositional political scene in Jordan is, is pretty well studied, right? There's some pretty remarkable people out there doing that sort of work. And I think there are less people uh, thinking about um, and doing the sorts of field work that deal with questions of everyday life, right? And it's always a sort of a elite focused or focused on certain currents. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just think that there's a lot of it, and that we need more of the we need more of the the sort of texture of the day to day. And that's what I try to do. Yeah, absolutely. And and there seems to be an almost absence of literature on everyday politics in Jordan, which is quite unfortunate. I mean, Jordan is often dismissed as being mundane. Um, but I think in spite of, or actually perhaps because of that mundaneness, there's actually a lot of interesting phenomena that can be studied, especially through a lens of everyday politics. Absolutely. And I think um, that's like a fascinating comment. And I guess I wonder 
questions for the listeners and questions for others. But I wonder why sort of the scholarship on Jordan specifically goes in certain directions, right? And why it is that it all, not at all by any means, but why there have been certain issues that have sort of captured the attention, both of scholars and I'd say often of policymakers and diplomats. And you're absolutely right, right? Like I find it to be a fascinating place. The joke amongst my friends, especially in Syria, was right, or who studied Syria, they would often call it the Hashemite Kingdom of Boredom. And I, you know, I would sort of laugh at this and say, well, you know, it might seem that way. And I can understand why it may seem that way if you come for a weekend or if you come from a place like Cairo or Beirut. But the I found it to be eminently textured and fascinating, and especially the, the, the sections on everyday life, especially in the places that weren't as well as well studied or as extensively studied, let's say. And yeah, I guess it's a question. It's one I bring up... Uh, with people who study Jordan all the time, why it is that uh, the, the the direction of study has taken a certain a certain pathway, and the capital is also and I and I'm guilty of this, and I realize now maybe if I could go back, I might have done it differently. The capital is so extensively studied, while we know very little about what's going on in Jarash or Ajlun or Ramse or Aqaba. I mean, it's a fascinating place with quite a few fascinating towns and cities, and. I also mentioned this because I'm working on a piece now on Ma'an, which is a city in the south that is extensively written about journalistically, but I was like, you know, sort of doing the classic literature view that one does to familiarize, familiarize myself with what's out there. And there really isn't that much. And it's surprising. No, for sure. I mean, I'm guilty of that too. And I think, you know, maybe a large part of that, at least it is for me, is, is practicalities in Jordan, you know, where it's very easy to interview very prominent members of uh, the political scene in Jordan, which I think draws a lot of people to study sort of politics and governance in a man. And I think maybe many also just don't want to spend that much time in small cities in Jordan. Yeah, I, I understand that. And I am guilty of it uh, as well, right? There are plenty of elite interviews and, uh, and other works that, I, that people can see that I've written have plenty of those sorts of things. But, you know, people go to other countries and get out of the capital, and they do it all the time. And we have a distinct sense of the, not a distinct sense, but we have a much stronger sense of the Syrian countryside, of the Egyptian countryside, of the Moroccan countryside. And I don't think it's any, it's any easier to go to those sorts of places. And, you know, Jordan is, is a small place. It's not impossible to go out outside of the capital. If anything, I find, I found it, quite, I find it quite easy, right, as someone who grew up in a, in a pretty small place as well that you can drive for two or three hours and, you know, go to someplace completely new. But yes, yeah, I think we agree on this. And I, I guess uh, food for thought for those who are interested in Jordan and study Jordan and those who might visit Jordan, right, to get outside of the capital and, and see other places. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, you know, maybe this is related to, to the Jordanian sort of mundaneness a little bit. But I mean, do we see these same sort of kind of middle ground um, politics of resistance and acquiescence in other contexts in the region? I mean, is that what you saw in Syria, for example, or is it maybe unique to a certain political system? So I think you, I think we see them everywhere, and uh, not only in the region, but outside of it. I think they take, they, they look, sound, and feel differently, depending, right. obviously, on, uh, on context. Sometimes in Jordan, even from neighborhood to neighborhood, right, there would be, it's very different what was going on in a bakery in a lower class area versus a conversation in a fancy coffee shop in Swafia. And I'd right. say both of them were situating themselves somewhere outside of the resistance hegemony 
uh, dyad, but they look differently. And yeah, I definitely saw similar sorts of actions in, in Syria, in Egypt, in Iran, where I spent some time. And I think for those who are interested, right, Asef Bayat, I think to, to this day still has sort of the great book on the politics of everyday life in the Middle East. And it's full of these sort of beautiful vignettes and accounts of, you know, how what he calls, I guess, marginalized and subaltern communities that do things like steal electricity or squat on public land and how these are responses to certain conditions that don't look like straightforward resistance and aren't necessarily, you know, acquiescence to a certain political order. There's somewhere in that hazy middle that really interesting in between. And definitely, I mean, I think I can bring you further examples, but the one I, I sort of bring to students all the time that they usually find interesting, we watch an episode of The Wire. Uh, I think it's called Hamsterdam, in which um, Bunny, the sort of police chief, the police chief, he's trying to combat or trying to minimize crime in a certain area that has a sort of historic problem with um, with drug abuse, and he decides to sort of uh, right designate two or three blocks where the police will not intervene, where needles and um, uh, whoever needs sort of assistance or desires help to uh, to to rehabilitate or to escape, I guess, the, the problems they're facing, where that can occur in a sort of space, uh, safe space. And so what I think it's an example of is how different places can go about uh, setting up these middle spaces. And the government uh, knows, obviously, I mean, as, as those who might have seen, I don't want to, you know, spoiler alert, I don't want to give it all away, but the, the whole the whole project collapses eventually. But it, it has this sort of beautiful time, which I don't know quite how long it was, right? But it might have been weeks, it might have been months, where it really works and where it really uh, sort of functions to, to allow for interesting things to happen. And what I find interesting about the bakery is that it's where a lot of interesting things are happening in spite of the way government may want to see them organized. But to answer your question, and this was a very long-winded way of answering it, absolutely, I think it happens in other places and other contexts. Oh, interesting. And I, I like the, the wire example. That's great. Um, so you conducted your field work a couple of years ago now. And since then, um, in 2018, there was a decrease in subsidies uh, and a consequent rise of bread prices. And there have been some changes in bread consumption as a result of this that have led to some frustration among bakery owners and in some cases um, to closure of bakeries. Uh, do you have a sense of whether and, I guess, how these changes are affecting uh, the relationships between bakeries and communities that you observed? Um, maybe this is particularly interesting in light of the, the shift in focus of subsidies from, from being directly given to the bakery products um, to direct support to families. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Absolutely. So, I mean, to clarify this for the listeners a bit, in 2018, along with a whole host of other changes that Prime Minister Hani and Mul'i uh, implements at the time, there is a change from being able uh, to go to the bakery and purchase bread at a set price that is the same for every resident of Jordan. That's changed to a direct uh, cash subsidy in which every eligible Jordanian receives 27 uh, dinars per month, uh, or sorry, per year for the bread that they consume. This was a long-standing sort of proposal. There were different iterations of it that I've written about, and it finally happens in 2018. There are many reasons why it happens, but it, I think it radically transforms the way people relate to government, right? It's very different to be able to walk into any bakery knowing that you will be able to purchase bread at a set price versus getting a cash disbursement into your bank account that you can then go 
and use for bread. So the first thing to say from, so I was in Jordan last summer, is that it's uh, it's led to a consolidation of several bakeries. So bakeries that before survived and that were you know usually quite small, two or three employees, those are closing down more and more often and they're being uh, sort of replaced is not the word, but they're being beaten out or they are being forced to close by these sort of larger bakeries, which if you've yeah, if you spent any time in Jordan, you sort of know the difference, right, between the Chabaz in the, the sort of neighborhood versus the massive emporium where you can get everything, right? Gag, sweets, biscuits, cakes. And so those are growing and the small ones are decreasing. Now, when I talk to people in the ministry, they would say, yeah, that's capitalism. And so, you know, why should the small ones survive? It becomes a problem in neighborhoods that are food insecure or towns and villages where people are food insecure, right, where it becomes much harder to access bread. It also is a very uh, sort of, it also engenders problems related to how families where uh, a spouse may work in a certain city, which is different from the city of his, uh, where his family lives. It's it's a different sort of problem, right? To send your, your child to the bakery or to you yourself fetch a certain amount of bread when it's in your bank account and it's not a, it's not a discounted price at the bakery. And so, yes, I mean, uh, there are still bakeries in most communities in Jordan. People are still, you know, wedded to them in ways that I can completely understand and in ways that I think we see people have connections to sort of uh, food outlets that distribute sort of basic carbohydrates in lots of parts of the world. But I do think it's uh, causing more food insecurity. I do think it's really affecting um, Syrian refugee communities. I do think it's very much impacting migrant laborers, especially Egyptians, who really depend on the bread to survive, to have enough money left over at the end of the month to send a bit home. And so there are all sorts of unexpected problems that are coming. The other thing I'd say that is sort of disastrous about the change that they made is that the the we all the savings they were supposed to make from doing this have to do with shifting the price of discounted flour in response to the wheat uh, the wheat price on the world market, right? So the idea was we will set up a yearly subsidy right. for Jordanian citizens and establish a price of bread that responds to the world market, right? So that we are more in the vision of the IMF and the World Bank who like proposing these problems, they, these programs and these reforms. The problem is right. that yeah. uh, after changing the price in 2010, the price has not changed again, right? I think it went from 16 to 34 and it's it's stuck there even though it should be going higher given world wheat prices. Yeah. And it's because as in past moments of uh, Jordanian history, it's uh, people will get incredibly angry and uh, there will, and the government fears changing the bread price again for reasons I can understand and for reasons that the IMF has failed to con- consistently understand. So all the intended savings that were supposed to come from this reform, there have been some but not nearly as much as envisioned. And so then my question for the government becomes, is it really worth the $50 million in savings uh, given the the very small sort of benefit? Because the other thing that was beautiful about the Jordanian bread subsidy and that most bakers I talked to celebrated was the fact that there were no bread lines in Jordan as there are in Egypt. The fact that anyone could go into any bakery and buy the subsidized bread, no matter your circumstances, no matter how much money you had in your pocket, no matter how much, uh, no matter where you were from, right? I could buy subsidized bread in the bakery. I didn't necessarily need it, but it was comforting to me to know that anyone who did need it could go in and buy it. And there is something to be said about that, right? Just as people argue that there's something to be said about universal health care, to know that you will never go broke 
because you have access to health insurance. And they're not the same, and there are obviously differences between them, but I thought that this was something that spoke highly of both the Jordanian government and the sort of social actors who helped to enact this program. And it's been lost. And so, yes, I do think um, there have been changes in the relationships. There are all sorts of other you know, bread industry insider changes that I can detail if you like, but, but definitely there are changes. And I think the, the thing I want the listeners to possibly think about is how relationship between government and its citizens change when you go from getting direct subsidies to getting a cash disbursement. Do we not lose something in the middle? Or maybe I'm just an old school sort of modernist and I'm mourning the fact that we no longer aspire to take care of all those in a society. Uh, that's interesting. And and thank you for explaining uh, the background context a bit better. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned both uh, the food insecurity as well as Jordan falling out of line with international wheat prices. Uh, and that's particularly interesting in the context of COVID and its ex- exacerbation of existing uh, economic issues. Um, how much potential do you see for an elimination of the bread subsidy altogether in the near future? Uh, and what do you think would be the actual impact of that? I I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't been to Jordan in a year. I haven't been nor seen, so I guess I have questions for you on this front. I haven't seen the sort of um, governmental response <laughs> nor what things are, you know, as, as most countries at the moment, right? They're considering what things to continue, what to change, how to respond. And the, the, the difference has been drastic, right? Like I live in the UK, my brother lives in Mexico. I have a lot of friends in the US and, you know, vastly different sort of responses. So whether they eliminate it, I would hope that given the situation, given the hardships that most people are feeling, that they would come to the conclusion that now is really not the time to eliminate something as crucial yeah. Uh, as the bread subsidy, especially for those communities who thoroughly depend, right, on those 27 JD. And if you're a family of four, you're a family of five, right, the 27 JD, you add it up, it becomes a substantial amount of cash that you can use for bread. You can also use for other things, which is the way people defend the change, right? Let the consumer pick what they want. I don't necessarily agree with that, but, you know, if you're a family of five or six, you're... Uh, the mother or the father, both members of the household may have lost their jobs. They may not be able to work as often as they were working before COVID. So I think it makes no sense to change it. Whether the government does, I mean, you know, the prime minister is a former world banker and has a certain conception of the economy. And I hope not. His uh, his statements so far have been that he has no interest in changing it. But I think, uh, you know, with COVID, it's all up in the air. And whether the money they've spent as all governments have spent in order to sort of prop up basic standards of living, whether they feel that they want to cut from that, cut from the bread subsidy in the future, rather than cut from all sorts of other wasteful projects that I see or that I feel uh, could be eliminated much uh, with far less of an impact on the most vulnerable members of society. It might happen. I'm not sure. I don't really believe in in prediction. I guess I, I have questions for you, Ezra, and uh, I'm curious what your thoughts on on how the government has managed it, and I guess specifically Razaz, right, the current prime minister. And I really don't have a sense of him. I've, I've, you know, I've met him a few times and interviewed him, but I really can't quite, quite I can't quite get what he's after. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess my main question there would be the extent to which Razaz actually makes decisions of that nature, whether they're decided for him. Um, but I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, the government has handled the situation well. I mean, there's certainly been mistakes, but probably less than in a lot of places. Um, so I don't think they would be, I don't think they would take a step like cutting the bread subsidy in the current context. 
I mean, I thought an interesting part of your article was showing how easily the bakeries were able to mobilize Jordanians. Um, and the government is witnessing sort of a similar phenomenon now where the teachers, who many Jordanians also identify with, have been able to bring you know, large populations into the streets. And I think the removal of bread subsidy at, you know, at this point, especially at this point, would you know, bring a lot of people into the streets as well. Absolutely. I mean, one of the other sort of other things I've I've published is very much about the symbolism of bread and why it is that it's so easy to mobilize people around it in the same way that you said that sort of teachers uh, unions have very successfully been able to mobilize people around their cause. And so, yeah, no, I find I find bread to to be evocative and symbolic in all sorts of interesting ways. Did uh, can I ask you about the sort of militarization of the of the response i mean i i agree with you from afar and from my conversations with with friends that have been in jordan throughout mm -hmm. that it's been relatively successful that compared to other places the government has been pretty on top of things that closing the airport so soon was a, a correct choice but the military has been heavily involved from the outset in the response mm -hmm. and you know, I see pictures that as someone, right, who grew up in Latin America, I would find disconcerting of the military on the streets, the military doing all sorts of things because of the sort of histories and the legacies of the military in a very different part of the world. Yet the pictures and the photos and the sort of videos I saw, people seemed to welcome the intervention of the military because it was a force they trusted, because maybe it was a force that they, you know, it was filled with their uh, with cousins and relatives and friends and people they knew. And so I was surprised how widely praised it was. Like, am I, am I seeing these things in only through only one prism, or is that was that sort of is that your sense of things on the ground too? Yeah, I mean, from the ground, I can only really speak from one prism as well. I mean, that of West Amman, where where I think that there was a fairly positive response to the security forces. Uh, it may have been less so in areas like Irbid or you know others where the crackdown was more draconian, and certainly. Now, during the protests following the closure of the of the Jordan Teachers Association, um, but overall, I think it was positive. You know, I think they also locked people down at a time where it seemed appropriate and opened up again. You know, before uh, Jordanians really got restless, um, and so in that sense, I think the the response seemed appropriate. And of course, not only are the security and defense forces filled with uh, with people's cousins and siblings, like you mentioned, but the security and defense forces, you know, always show up in polls uh, as being amongst the most trusted governance actors in the country. So I, I think in a sense, you know, they've been able to sort of maintain that legitimacy and trust, you know, throughout the, throughout the response. No, it's interesting. Yeah. I'm, uh, I find it incredibly interesting. That is, uh, it's rarely the case that, that the military uh, scores so highly but you know yeah an interesting thing to, to unpack and think about I'd... great well i think that's probably a good place for us to leave it today jose thank you very much for joining us today it's really been interesting thank you for having me and thank you to everyone who listened in we'll be back soon with another episode of the middle east long governance podcast <laughs>